like to turn with me to Psalm 110. Psalm 110. And we can we can share this passage together. Psalm 110. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion. You will rule in the midst of your enemies. Your troops will be willing on your day of battle. Arrayed in holy majesty from the womb of the dawn, you will receive the dew of your youth. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever in the order of, in the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will crush kings on the day of his wrath. He will judge the nations, heaping up the dead and crushing the rulers of the whole earth. He will drink from a brook beside the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. Would you turn with me now to um, Ephesians chapter 1? And we'll be reading from, from verse 15 to the end of the chapter. Ephesians chapter 1. Verse 15. Okay, for this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking that God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is like the working of his mighty strength, which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. Far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every title that can be given, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. May the Lord add blessing to the reading of his word. Let's pray. Lord, as we come into your word this morning, I pray that you'll open our hearts that we will hear what you have for us to say, that you'll open Sam's mouth, that he will speak the words that you have for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks very much, Kevin, for reading the word. Chapel Street is so good to see so many here, so many faces I haven't seen for so long, as well as the usual faces and Dave and, and Bryony online too. I should probably warn you at the beginning of this message that I've been greatly affected by the passage that we just heard. And uh, I pray too that I'd be able to somehow step aside and let God speak as we go through this together. I want to start with a question today. Have you ever felt powerless? Have you ever felt like you've not got enough power to control something? 
the 10th of June 1982 is a date that's been forever etched in my memory since it happened. And the relief of that etching is as proud as it's ever been. It's the day that my best friend at school died unexpectedly without any warning whatsoever. A day when I felt utterly powerless. A day when I hoped and hoped and hoped with all my might and all my will that things would change, that somehow he would be raised from the dead. And hope sometimes like that is against hope. We are powerless against such things. And to be blunt, when they lowered my friend into the grave, I went to the last place of hope, to a God that I didn't know, I didn't want to know, but whose power I knew could make everything different. And yet, he still was dead. If God is not all-powerful, there is no hope. There's no glorious inheritance, as we'll read today. In fact, there's just despair. And Ephesians, as we've learned for the last couple of weeks, is a book about praise. It's a book about God's glory. It's a good book about blessing, about how God speaks well of us in his son and speaks well of his son. It's a book about salvation. It's a book that's got everything in, the gospel, true love, marriage, children, work. But none of those things have any substance if God is not powerful and so, if you will, the first section that we've learnt about for the last couple of weeks in Ephesians is about praise, the praise of his glorious grace, about an inheritance that is kept and sealed by the promised Holy Spirit. Now Paul moves from praise to prayer. What a great place to go after praising God to move to prayer. The praise of his glorious grace, we find ourselves listening to Paul praying to the church at Ephesus, and in fact the church across the whole of Asia Minor, really, and to us today, that there would be real hope because of God's power, and that we would trust in that hope because of God's power and his faithfulness. It's a prayer that answers questions. What hope do we have? How do I know that I can truly trust God in the midst of my suffering? If he's in church and the churches all around the world at that time were suffering, they're being persecuted. In Ephesus in particular, there were riots, there were false gods, there were spiritual battles going on. So we can hear other parts of Ephesians already. When there's struggling, and I know we are struggling in different ways and at different times, but we are all struggling. We are all suffering in some way. It's a prayer that we need to know because we need to know God cares. We need to know that there really is hope. That things 
really will work together for good for those that are called and loved. It's a verse we quote all the time, isn't it? We need to know that they will work together for good because God has real power to make it work. So let's turn to our passage. So Ephesians chapter 1, verse 15 following, we're going to preach straight out of the text if we can. I'll just read the first section. So from chapter 15, Paul says, For this reason, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. Now Paul's prayer here is twofold. The first thing he does is he gives thanks for the people the Christians, the believers in Ephesus. And the second fold is that he makes a petition. He makes a plea to God for them. And I want to make the same petition and plea for us today. But the first thing is that Paul gives thanks. He says, for this reason. Now, for this reason, when we see something like that, we've got to say, well, what reason? Well, Paul's just explained the praise and the glory and the blessing and the inheritance and how it's sealed. And for that reason, he's going to give thanks. But he's also going to give thanks because he's heard something about the church in Ephesus. He's heard about their faith in Jesus Christ. He's heard about their love towards all the saints. That's a good thing to give thanks for, isn't it? I mean, in a sense, there's some of the hallmarks of being a Christian. You have faith in Jesus Christ and you love the saints. And just a little plug, 7 p.m. Wednesday night is prayer night. And if you come to prayer night, which you all will this week, if you're able to and you want to, you will hear people praying and giving thanks because of people's faith. You will hear people praying and giving thanks because of people's love for the saints and those that aren't Christian. It's a good thing to give thanks for, I'm sure. In fact, I know because I've heard you give thanks for those things in church. And I hope that others give thanks for you and your faith. is a mutual encouragement in this prayer. So come to prayer night. So Paul gives thanks for a church in the midst of strife and struggle and persecution because they're continuing to love one another. They're continuing to persevere in faith by God's grace. So that's Paul's First fold in this prayer. And the second fold is his petition, the plea that he makes, the thing that he asks God for. Verse 16, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your heart opened or enlightened. 
Paul's giving thanks, but he's then making a petition or a plea to God for those Christians to get something. And fundamentally, the thing that he wants them to get is more knowledge of him. See, people pray for all sorts of things, usually blessings in one form or another. But what we really ought to pray for is that we'll have more knowledge of God. Surely that will increase our faith. Surely that will be the driver for our love towards all the saints. It's a knowledge of him. Not knowledge of theology, which is good perhaps, but only if it's learning more about God, only if it's causing us to draw more to God, closer to God. They have faith and they have love, but they need more. They need more. They need more of him. In the midst of persecution, that's what we need. We don't necessarily need to be taken out of persecution. The Christian life isn't a good life in the sense that everything is going to be okay. It's a good life in the sense that there is a hope that it will be okay. Philippians 1.9 says, just similar actually, it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge, there it is, and discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. Paul wants them and I want us to know more about this God. Just a quick point about the eyes of the heart. It's such a beautiful um, picture. It's, it's a metaphor, isn't it? Having our, the eyes of our heart opened or enlightened. Someone pointed out to me just yesterday that you can't open the eyes of your heart yourself. You can't. It's, I will know more about God. Without the word of God, the spirit of God, and God's desire, you won't know more about God. So the answer to that is to come to God and beg for it, to read his word and have his spirit treat you to know more about him. Do you pray for this? Do you pray to have the eyes of your heart enlightened? Do you pray to know more about this God? We should. There are many things we should pray for, but this is key. Do you want to know more of God? You need to pray. You need to read his word. So he gives thanks for their faith in Christ Jesus, for their love of all the saints, and he begins to make this petition that these Christians will know more of him. And he gives us three things very neatly, because that always allows you to make three points in your message. And I'm very grateful for that. <laughs> and I just want to draw us into these three things a little bit more deeply, and then we'll get the real power that drives these things and binds these things together. So the first one is he wants them, or I'm just going to say point one, is knowing the hope to which you have been called. Knowing the hope to which you have been called. Verse 18, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. 
What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe? So knowing the hope to which he has been called you, well, has, has called you to. Well, what has he called us to? Well, God's called us to lots of things. He's called us to be holy. He's called us to be saints. He's called us into the kingdom of his beloved son. According to Romans 8.28, he's called us according to his purpose. It's important that he's not called us according to our purpose. Where's the hope? Romans 8.28 says, and we know, it's that passage, for those that love God and are called according to his purpose, that all things work together for good. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. That sounds like Ephesians 1, doesn't it? For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. What a hope. You're going to be conformed to the image of his son. I tell you what, I need that. Do you need that? You're happy with the image that you are? You're made in God's image. But there's a hope that you're going to be conformed to Christ's image. He then says, in order that Jesus might be the firstborn among many brothers. Then he says this, and those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. There is hope. There is justification. There is glorification. There is salvation. There is peace. Not here. Not now. But in the future, there is a hope. Do you know that hope? In the midst of suffering, do you know it? Do you forget it? If you don't know Christ, then you have no hope. I hope, as we've been reminded this morning in communion, that you know Christ, that your sins are forgiven. Because if they are, you have this hope to which you have been called. So point number one, knowing the hope to which you've been called. Point number two, knowing the riches of his glorious inheritance. Back to the text, verse 18, I really want to etch this onto our minds. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he's called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Now, scholars seem to argue a little bit about who gets the inheritance in this passage um, there's some scholars that believe it's it's god's inheritance that god gets the inheritance and the inheritance therefore in this context is you is me is christians and the old testament has that um picture that reality in it all the time you could look at psalm 78 Verse 71, for example, and Peter in the New Testament also gives us that idea 
He says in verses 1 Peter 2, 9, he says, but you are a chosen race. You, not just the Jews, the Gentiles. A royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you. So there is that idea of God inheriting his people, his pure, holy, righteous people because of the blood of Christ. But other scholars talk about it being our inheritance. Now, you know what I'm going to say, don't you? I'm going to say it's both, because that's the easiest way out of a, a problem like that. It must be both. The question then for us is, what's our inheritance? What are we going to get? Well, Back in uh, Ephesians chapter 1, we heard this last week, verse 11 following, Paul says, In him, in Christ, we've obtained an inheritance, having be, been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is a guarantee, is the very guarantee of your inheritance until we acquire possession of it. So, to the praise of his glory. So the saints have an inheritance and it says here that it is gloriously rich so we know that we have it the question is what is it i'd like to know it's gloriously rich and i'm going to inherit it in fact i'm going to inherit the same thing that jesus inherits listen to this romans 8 17 the spirit himself paul says bears witness with our spirit that we are children of god and if children then heirs heirs of god and fellow heirs with christ provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. What does an heir get? The heir gets an inheritance, gets the inheritance. When our children of God, we will inherit something. But what is it? Ephesians 2, later on, 6 and 7, he being Jesus, raised us up with him, seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show, here it is, the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. You're going to be in the throne room of the king. And this king is God. If you don't think that's immeasurably rich, then you need to spend time dwelling on that, thinking on that. His grace will be visible in the form of Jesus Christ, the Lamb slain for us. His kindness will be visible. So what is this glorious inheritance? Yes, it's forgiveness. Yes, it's peace. 
Yes, it's reconciliation. We've been ransomed. It's all of those things, but it's much more. The glorious inheritance, which is immeasurable, is God. The rich inheritance that we are heirs of is God himself. We inherit him. There is nothing more rich than that. Some years ago, some of you will know that I thought it was a good idea to uh, start riding dirt bikes off-road. And uh, this wasn't the greatest idea I thought it was, but I do have a memory of being with another Christian friend and pulling up at the side of the bush one day, and he said to me, one day in heaven we'll be able to ride properly without breaking bones and making fools of ourselves. And I said, do you think there'll be motorcycles in heaven? Kind of excited. <laughs> and he said, oh, yeah, there'll definitely be motorcycles in heaven. I'm not interested in motorcycles in heaven because God's there. Because he's the glorious inheritance. It's him I want to be with. Do you want to be with God? He's your creator. Where else would you want to be? Immeasurable riches. God is glorious. His rich inheritance is Jesus. Jesus is the infinitely, the most infinitely valuable treasure beyond the cosmos. And another aspect of the inheritance, as well as being with God, is being with the church. We inherit, as it were, one another. And not just like this, in heaven, in the new creation when it comes. The church is the body of Christ, as we'll hear in a minute. And we inherit that. We inherit in a, in a different way to the way it is now. Listen to this. Re Revelation 7, 9 says, the Apostle John says, After this, he says, I looked and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes, from all peoples, from all languages, standing before the throne of the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands. What does that remind you of? I can't wait to have a palm branch before the king as he goes up to Jerusalem, so to speak, and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne. Here he is on the throne and to the lamb. That's a glorious inheritance. No more pain, no more striving, no more struggles, no more tears, no more angst, just glory. What a rich inheritance. You want to read about it again, go back to the beginning of Ephesians and just read the bit that Dave preached on us last week. It's part of the glorious inheritance, the picture that's there. So point number one, <clears throat> excuse me, knowing the hope to which you've been called, knowing the riches of his glorious inheritance was point number two. And point number three is knowing the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe. Paul is praying that the saints 
will have a bigger revelation of God's immeasurable greatness and his power towards us believe. Let me read that section for us in verse 19. What is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe? How? Well, according to the working of his great might, the evidence of it in, in history. Verse 20, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and all authority and power and dominion, above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fulfills all in all. Knowing the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe. And some people might say, even some of us, well, that's all good and well, Sam. But you know, I'm struggling. I'm suffering. And I have been praying. I don't see any sign of God's goodness to me or God's power towards me. I want to say to you, keep praying, keep struggling. There's a hope. You've been called to it. And he is powerful. And the key to understanding that you do have a hope, that you are going to inherit, is to understand God's power. You see, that's why we need to understand God more. If we have a God that is powerless, it's no good. If we have a God who is powerful, then we need to get it. We need to understand it. As hope comes. When my friend died, I was powerless. It didn't take long for me to work that out. I was miserable. I was broken. He was my closest friend. And obviously it was a horrific shock. God didn't answer my prayer. But because I know something of his power and I know something of the cross, the death, burial and resurrection of Christ, I still trust him. He is all powerful. Did you hear it? Let's read it again. Verse 20. This is the power that he worked in Christ. When? When he raised him from the dead. This is the power that seated Christ at the right hand of the heavenly places. This is the power that put Christ Jesus above all rule and authority, above all dominion and all power, above every name that's named. Can you hear Philippians 2? Speaking to you, it's all there, isn't it? He raised his son from the dead. He raised his son from the earth. That's the ascension. He raised his son above all rule and authority. He raised his son above all power and all dominion. And he gave him the name above all names. And he seated him at the right hand, in the, at his right hand in the heavenly places. 
Some say that all of Christianity is hinged, it's connected to the resurrection. Because without the resurrection, there ain't no hope. There's nothing. There's just this life. There is no glorious inheritance. There is no forgiveness of sins. If there is, there's no life after death. It's true, isn't it, that the reality of the resurrection is fundamental to Christianity. God came as a man. He was obedient. He was loving. He was good. He was compassionate. He did miracles as a sign of his compassion and a sign of his authority and power. And he was obedient to the point of death. And he lay in a grave cold, still, lifeless. I like to think, just as the Lord Jesus calls Lazarus out of the tomb, the Father calls his Son to the hope that was set before him. The resurrection brings hope. The resurrection is the thing that is the pathway to the glorious inheritance in Christ. 1 Corinthians 15. But, says Paul, if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching has been in vain. And your faith is in vain. We're even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he didn't raise if it's true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ is raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. There is no hope. And you're still in your sins. Then those who have fallen in, into sleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope only in this life, then we are most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Think of that picture. He's been raised, sits at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority, above all power and dominion. Listen to Psalm 110, which Kev read for us earlier. The Lord, this is Psalm of David, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. 
wow, I wonder if David really got what he was writing when he wrote that. Brothers and sisters in Christ, you are called to a hope. You have a glorious inheritance and God has the power to do it. He's perfected for all time you, those who are being sanctified. See, that's where we are now. We're being sanctified. It's painful, isn't it? Anyone enjoying just being <laughs> sanctified? It's not easy. Why? Because we resist it. Our whole nature fights against it. There are temptations and there are persecutions. But he is powerful and he will do it. Do you believe this? Do you believe it? Do you have that hope? Do you believe that one day you will be, so to speak, promoted to be amongst that church in the presence of Christ? Seeing and savoring the glorious inheritance, God himself. If you don't know that, then you can, by God's grace, as we learned in the first part of chapter one, you can turn, you can confess that you are a sinner. You can receive mercy, first picture of the glorious inheritance. You can be saved and enter in and have that hope. Did you notice though at the end of our passage, Paul adds something else in his prayer. Verse 22, he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to you to the church, which is his body, the fullness thereof, or the fullness of him who fills all in all. Christ is your head. You are his body. They are inseparable. You are the fullness thereof of Christ in the world. He walks in our church now. We believe that. His spirit is here. His word is being opened. And you are the body that has a hope, a real hope. Paul's not asking you to be hopeful. He wants you to know that you have a hope. It's not all in vain. It's not futile. He's not saying, look, hope for the best. He's saying you have a hope. It's okay. It's going to happen. the fullness of Christ's body. And so you do have a hope. And so you do love, don't you? Don't you want to love the saints? We're in pain. Don't you want to encourage them, as we heard prayed earlier, bear one another's burdens? Paul's telling you, you have a hope. He's praying that you will know more of God so that you will know more of that hope 
He's praying that the Spirit will reveal more of God so you will know more of that glorious inheritance so that you can get through today, tomorrow. And more importantly, he's telling you that God has the power to do it. He's not powerless. He's not impotent. And he loves you. Let's pray. Father God in heaven, Lord, thank you that you have caused our eyes to be opened to see you. That you have given us faith to know you. Father, thank you that you cause us to be convicted in such a way that we love one another because you first loved us. Lord, please open our eyes more. Lord, would our prayer for ourselves and for one another be that you would give us the spirit of wisdom. Lord, that you would reveal yourself such that we would have a deeper, more profound, closer knowledge of you you would open the eyes of our hearts and Lord that we would know what is this hope to which we are called the sureness the assurance the certain nature of it Lord that we would know what are the riches of your inheritance and our inheritance Lord, that we would know what is the immeasurable greatness of your power because you have displayed it by mighty works by raising your son from the dead. Lord, would you treat us to more of this truth that we would work and walk in a manner worthy of the calling by which we've been called to hope in Christ. Amen.